Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, Crosspoint. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the second gospel, second book in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at this familiar scene of Jesus calming the storm at the end of Mark chapter 4. As you're finding that, let's admit that these are our anxious days. Many of us, probably most of us, if not all of us, have had to deal with some level of anxiety and fear because of this coronavirus pandemic quarantine isolation time that we find ourselves in. Maybe we started off by by not thinking much of it, maybe even rolling our eyes a bit at it, thinking it was a bit of an overblown situation. But as the days have gone on by, I think for all of us, we've started to think about fear and anxiety. Maybe it's not a personal fear of, of getting the virus ourselves, although that might be a fear for some of us, but it's a fear maybe for a loved one, an aging parent. Or maybe it's a fear about your job or the financial situation or what, what life will look like on the other side of this time of isolation. And here we are on this first Sunday of April, this Palm Sunday, as we would normally be preparing our hearts for the Passion Week to gather again in a week in this room to celebrate the resurrection of our King. And all of us unexpectedly are dealing with some level of anxiety and fear. So the question I want us to think about this morning as we look at this text, this beautiful scene of Jesus calming the storm, is what does the Bible say about fear and anxiety and how should we handle it? So let me read our text and pray and ask the Lord to help us. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. And as I mentioned a, a couple weeks ago when we started this live stream, we've hit the pause button on our James series. We're not going to kick back into James and finish up chapter 5 until we can gather together. In the time being, we're going to be looking at just selected passages that help us anchor our hope in Christ during this time. So let's look at this beautiful scene at the end of Mark 4, starting in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this, this beautiful scene in Mark where we see Jesus calming the storm and calming the hearts of fearful disciples in the boat. Lord, speak to our minds and our hearts and our spirits this morning as we are all dealing with varying levels of uncertainty and anxiety and fear. I pray that your word would do its work and that your spirit would make your people more like Jesus. And that same spirit of God, by your sovereign grace, according to your good pleasure, might be so pleased to give anybody that is listening to this live stream that does not yet trust in Christ, that you, by your free and unconditional grace, would give life and faith to a dead heart so they might turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Christ so that they too might be reconciled to you. And I pray all these things, Lord, for the good of your people, for the building up of the church and the salvation of all those that you have called to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the Bible say about fear and how should we handle it? Well, to, to help us understand this text, I think before we look back through it, we need, to, we need to understand what we mean by this concept of fear. For the past week or so, I have been reading this, this little book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear by this English Puritan pastor named John Flavel. And John Flavel was an English pastor in the 1600s in the London area. And he wrote this little book, which was really just a, a sermon uh, that ended up being a book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. And in this beautiful, helpful little goldmine of a book, Flavel distinguishes three types of, of fear that, that all of us deal with or that, that hit the human heart. The first is natural fear. This is the, the kind of fear, the agitation that we feel when, we, when we're, when we're in, in the face of impending danger. Think of maybe being in the, the woods and you come upon a grizzly bear. Or if you're swimming in the ocean and, and you, you see a shark. Those of you that know me know that I have a fear of sharks. This is a natural fear. It's not necessarily a sinful fear, but it's this kind of natural response that God has given us that, that helps to protect us. Now, it's not necessarily sinful, this natural fear. It's really protective. It's something God gives us to cause us to run from danger. But it, it is the result of a fallen world. I mean, we're not meant to be eaten by sharks or chased by bears. So, so although this natural fear is not sin in and of itself, it's a result of this broken world that we, we face. The second type of fear that Flavel discusses in his book is, is a sinful fear. And that's what we see in our text, and that's what I think we're, we're dealing with in our hearts. And this sinful fear is this, this fear of man. It's the fear of the world or anything in this world that we would fear in a sinful way that we would bow down to more than we bow down, bow down to God. Now, why is this type of fear so sinful? Well, there's a few reasons. First is that it, it springs from a lack of faith, a lack of trust in the goodness of God towards his people. 
this sinful fear fails to rely on the security of God's promise for his people, that he will bring them all the way home. The second reason why it's sinful is it, is it gives too much power to the thing that we're afraid of. It ends up actually elevating the created thing over the creator. So it's actually a kind of idolatry. It's a kind of false worship to be more fearful of something that's created rather than God. And then the third reason why, why sinful fear is so sinful is because it, when we are afraid of this thing, it actually causes us to sin more to escape the danger. So sinful fear makes us commit more sins, more acts of disobedience against God. At its most severe sort of manifestation, sinful fear can make us do something like sell out a friend, you know, in front of the emperor. That's, that's like, think of yourself as a first century Christian standing before Nero, and you, you are denying Christ and maybe giving up your friend who is worshiping. At its most trivial, sinful fear would, would cause us to, and this is something we see in, in our culture today, it would cause us to do something like hoard toilet paper at the grocery store. We're, we're thinking about ourselves. Fear has gripped us. And now we're looking out for number one, and that number one is our own comfort and our own needs. But both of these, whether it's severe or silly, comes from a sinful fear which pushes us, inclines us to think of ourselves first. So there's natural fear, there's sinful fear, and then finally, this third type of fear is a good fear. It's a godly fear. It's a right fear of God in all of his glory. Now here's this, let me read this beautiful quote from Flavel in his book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, and he's going to use this word, awful, that we, the way we would use the word awful today in English has a kind of negative connotation, but in old English back in the 1600s, think of the word awful, awe, like it's awe-inspiring, so awful also would mean being full of awe, like a great thing. And listen to what Flavel says about this godly fear that we should pursue in our lives. He says, there is a holy and laudable fear, which is our treasure, not our torment. It is the chief ornament of the soul. Sinful fear is the disordered and corrupt passion of the soul. But the awful fear, in other words, the fear that's full of awe of God, is the natural passion sanctified, changed and baptized into the name and nature of a spiritual grace. It devours carnal fear. This fear is a gracious habit or principle which God plants in the soul whereby it is kept under a holy awe of the eye of God. As a result, it is inclined to do whatever pleases God and avoid what he forbids and hates. Now that's the type of fear that we want to pursue that Flavel points us to here, this godly fear. And here's this point as we look at our text. We're going to work our way back through quickly our text again. And here's the point that I want us to see in this text, is that the way we triumph over sinful fear and anxiety is by fighting that fear with a greater fear, a godly fear of God. That's the point of this text. 
All right, as we work through it, we're going to point out a few details, and then we're going to settle on that great truth that we are to fight sinful fear with the greater fear, the godly fear of the fear of God. So let's look at our passage again, verses 35 through 36. Let's read that again. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Let's pause there and notice a few things. First, I want us to notice that Jesus intentionally leads his disciples into the storm. Now, it's important for us to realize, in, in fact, when we're reading the whole Gospels, all four of them, we, we need to know that everything that happens to Jesus, everything that's happening around him, is not happening by chance. Jesus in this text is even within these few verses, we see this, this, this kind of uh, clear statement that Jesus is truly man. He's, he's asleep. He's, he's tired from a long day of ministry, but he's also fully God. So he's God in the flesh. He, he, we see this picture of, all through the Gospels in Jesus' ministry of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. This storm, this situation, this circumstance, this date in history did not take the Trinity, our God, three in one by surprise, and it didn't take Jesus by surprise. We read about the Godhead, the Father God in Isaiah chapter 46, where he says through the prophet that I know the end from the beginning. So, so I would say that we are on firm biblical ground when we say that this storm not only did not surprise God the Father, but it did not surprise God the Son. And Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh, is intentionally leading, he's intentionally leading his disciples into this storm. Why is that important? What are we to make of that? Well, we know that Jesus has good purposes for his people. This situation has been arranged by God for the good of these fearful disciples. And we see this recorded. One of the things that we are to, to glean from this story is that as he's working for the good of his disciples, he's working for the good of all of his children. Friends, that's the great truth that we trumpet here, that we stand on, that we fasten ourselves to. Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, now more than ever, that verse needs to not merely be written on our walls in art, but it needs to be written on our hearts. We need to truly believe that. And I'm not dogging scripture art. I love scripture art, but let's let it be written on our hearts more than it adorns a shirt or something that we hang on a wall. God is always working for the good of his people, even when he leads them into the storm. So specifically, what, by, what might be one of God's good purposes for leading these disciples into this storm? And secondarily, what might be God's good purpose for leading his people 
all of his people around the world, leading them into this time that we face right now in this pandemic. One, just one thought, is that God, through this storm that the disciples were facing and that we are facing, is making us aware of our self-dependence and stripping us of it so that we might run to him. Listen to Paul's logic about afflictions in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Listen to Paul's logic about why God does what he does when he leads his people into storms or time of difficulty. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a bad place to be. It was so bad, Paul is saying in verse 8, that we despaired of life itself. We didn't want to go on anymore. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So do you see Paul's logic? He's looking at the situation that he's experiencing when he went to Asia and this persecution he felt for preaching the gospel, and it was so bad that he, he despaired of life itself, and his conclusion was not that God was distant and had forgotten about him, but that God was behind that affliction in order to wean him from self-dependence and woo him to himself. That's Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired biblical logic. And whatever may be going on in the disciples' lives, in this boat, and whatever may be going on in our lives, I think we can apply that truth to this situation. Listen to another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, who wrote a, another book, a little book called All Things for Good, and he wrote this. Puritans write books on one little verse, and it's a whole book. So the next time you think that my sermons are a little long, I, I, they're not a whole book on one verse. He, this little book called All Things for Good from Thomas Brooks, listen to what he says about God's purposes in leading us into storms. He says, affliction teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves. God makes us know affliction that we may better know ourselves. We see that corruption in our hearts in the time of affliction, which we would not believe was there. Water in the glass looks clear, but set it on the fire and the scum boils up. Oh, what a picture. But Brooks is saying that, that when we go into the storm, when we go into difficulty that causes us to fear, it's like God puts us on the flame. He, he boils the water of our lives so that the scum would come up, the, the self-dependence would rise to the top, and we would be aware of it, and we would do something about it. Friends, let's not waste this crisis that we're going through. What is God teaching you about yourselves? On the other end of this, certainly the disciples spent some time thinking about, wow, man, we, we were scared and we didn't need to be. What is God teaching you about yourself? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you sinfully so? Has this caused you to be impatient or scornful of others? 
Has it produced in you a hardness of heart, a cynicism, a grumbling or complaining? What is, what scum in your heart is this affliction bringing to the top? Recognize it and let's repent of it. Let's keep going. Verse 38 through 40. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? There's a couple things I want us to notice in these three verses before we move on to the last verse, which contains this beautiful truth that I want us to see. Just notice, notice the person of Jesus. He's truly man, he's truly God. He was, he was asleep. Jesus was taking a nap. And you sleep because you're tired. So Jesus, who is fully, truly God, always has been, the second person of the Trinity, no beginning, no end, has become a man and has taken on the likeness of sinful flesh, but yet without sin, he's acquainted with our weaknesses. And he wasn't worried at all, but he's also a man and he is taking a nap in the storm. There's just a beautiful picture of the combination, this beautiful picture of Christ who is truly man and truly God. Hebrews 2 2 tells us that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he would become a merciful priest to us. Jesus, as as we deal with our fear, as we see this scum sort of coming up to the top, Let's remember that Jesus is acquainted with our sorrows, yet without sin. Jesus is a merciful high priest. And we even see there's a kind of gentle rebuke of the disciples here. He says to them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Some of us, I don't know what your picture of of God is, A.W. Tozer, this this famous Bible teacher and pastor back in the mid-1900s, says that the most important thing about every person is what they think about when they think about God. What do you think about when you think about God? And here you have this beautiful picture of the compassion and the authority of God in Jesus. He, He chastens He gently rebukes, but lovingly rebukes his disciples. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus is on the side of his people, but he's chastening them like a a good God who is wanting to build them up and grow them in their faith. That's how Jesus speaks to us. Jesus is not scornful. Jesus is not fed up with you because of any scum that you see boiling up to the top of your life because of the situation that we're in. Jesus is gracious, but Jesus commands us to have faith in him. And notice then that just with a word, he calms the storm. I mean, he just woke up, and he speaks a word, peace, be still, and he's God. For those of you that still might be working through what the Bible says about the divinity of Jesus, in other words, Jesus being fully God, 
this is a clear reference to Jesus' divinity. We read in the Psalms in the Old Testament in numerous places. For example, one place in Psalm 89 that says, Who is as mighty as you are, Lord? You rule the raging sea. And here we have this picture of Jesus, God in the flesh, not merely a man, but also God who rules the raging sea with a word. Friends, before we move on to verse 41, just notice the compassion and the control of our sovereign God-man, Christ, who is he's with his people in the storm. He's with you now. Whatever your level of fear, whatever your circumstance, he's with you in that storm. And now to verse 41. Listen to this description of the disciples. Jesus has calmed the storm with a word. They were fearful because of the storm. And look at what verse 41 says is the end state of the disciples after Jesus calms the storm. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now we might think that their fears would have been calmed. Their sinful fear of the storm would have been calmed. But verse 41 says that now they were filled with an even greater fear than the fear they had of the storm. And it was a fear because they were standing in the presence of the one that they knew, as the psalmist said, is able to calm the raging sea. Now, I don't know if the disciples were were all the way there in this moment. I mean, we're early on in Jesus' ministry. We're early on in the Gospel of Mark. And right after they're filled with this great fear, they, they ask, Who then is this? So it it seems like they're still working through in their mind who Jesus is. But they're starting to approach this godly fear. Do you see that on the other side of this sinful fear, this sinful fear is eclipsed by a greater fear, which is the fear, the reverence, the awe of the Son of God who has complete control over everything. That's what we need to see in this text. That's the point I want to draw out for us from this scene in this moment that we are facing, this time of cultural fear, is that the way that we overcome sinful fear is by fearing God more. Listen to what the scriptures say about this this very concept of the fear of God, because I think in our culture, we tend to have a one-sided and not fully biblical picture of God. Yes, God is a good father who protects his children. And yes, God wants to comfort us. Yes, God is a gracious God. Yes, as Romans 8 says, God is our Abba Father. But if that's the only picture we have of God, we will only see the compassion of God and we will miss the glory of God, the sovereignty of God. And so the Bible, to help us with our fear, says yes, we can run to God as a father, but there are times when we need to see the fear of God, the awesomeness of God, and that's the picture here in the boat. They came on the other side of their sinful fear with a greater fear of Jesus who calmed the storm. And what does the Bible say about this type of fear? Listen to these passages. Proverbs 1, 
Verse 7, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, verse 28. This may shock some of your ears that maybe haven't heard this verse. Listen to what Jesus says. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, meaning God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus speaking. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah about the Assyrian Empire, these Assyrians that are going to conquer them. And the people are fearful, and they're starting to believe all sorts of crazy reports. They're watching the news every night, and they're texting one another. You know, I mean, doesn't this sound familiar? They're just coming up with theory after theory about what's going to happen next. And their hearts are gripped with temporary fear of what's going to happen next. And this is what God says to the nation of Israel as they're fearful. Listen to how God counsels Israel to deal with their sinful fear. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. In other words, don't worry about all the little reports of, of different things that are happening that are causing you fear. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Listen to God's logic as he's counseling his people. He's saying that the way you fight this sinful fear, the way you fight the fear that you have over the storm or the invading army that you are facing, whether it's the Assyrians in the Old Testament or whether it's the storm in Mark chapter 4 or whether it's the virus or the crashing markets in 2020, the way that you fight this sinful fear is by fearing God. God more. That's what God says. That's how God counsels and comforts his people. He says, let me be your fear. Let me be your dread. And it's a dread. It's a fear. It's an awe of God that doesn't push us away from him. But look what it says in verse 14 of Isaiah 8, that he will become our sanctuary. So here's the thing about the fear of God, the right godly fear of God. It doesn't drive us away from him, but it backs us into the corner. It strips us of all self-dependence, and it causes us to throw up our hands and say, God, you alone are my shelter. You alone are in charge. You alone are to be feared. You alone are to be worshiped. And you alone can be my sanctuary. That's what God is saying to Israel. That's what Jesus is picturing. That's what he's putting on display for the disciples in the boat. And certainly, that's one of the things that God is doing in his people today. So how do we fight this sinful fear? Let's, let's, let's think, just think practically as we end this message. Let's get some more counsel from our friend John Flavel in his little book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. He gives 
remedies for sinful fear, how we practically fight this sinful fear with godly fear. Now, he gives 12 remedies. I'm just going to give us three briefly. The first, he says, is that we should study the covenant of grace. Now, that is an old Puritan way of saying, remember the gospel. We say this often here. We have gospel amnesia. Even the strongest Christians among us have gospel amnesia. And we need to study. We need to rehearse. We need to remember the grace of the gospel. Listen to what Flavel says about remembering the gospel. He says, The first rule of relieving slavish fear is to consider seriously and study thoroughly the covenant of grace or the gospel in which all believers stand. A clear understanding of the covenant's nature, extent, and stability along with our interest in it will go a long way to cure our sinful and slavish fear. Oh, Flavel wrote these words 400 years ago, but they are so relevant today. Flavel knows that we have gospel amnesia, and the first thing that he counsels the fearful heart towards is to remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember that he has taken your dead heart. Listen to me now, friends. This is the gospel. God is holy and sovereign and good, and he created all things, and he created us, mankind, to be his image bearers on this earth, to steward his creation, but we fell. We rebelled against him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And now we have all descended from the same couple, Adam and Eve. We are all children of Adam. And we are now by nature rebels against God. That's the way we are born. The Bible is really, really clear about this. That that we are born with a bent to disobey God. We're, We're by nature sinners. And this sin, the Bible says very clearly in place is like Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 3, has rendered us spiritually unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. So we're in a kind of predicament here. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, to reconcile ourselves to God, and so we are helpless. We're dead in our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that God comes to us. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to us. And where we have all disobeyed God and rebelled God, Jesus becomes truly a man, yet still truly God, and obeys God in every way. And then, friends, this is such good news, God the Son lays down his perfect sinless life on the cross to bear the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against God. And Jesus, even though he's completely innocent, takes our place. He substitutes himself, and God the Father pours out the wrath that should be ours on God the Son. And because Jesus is more than just a good man, but an infinitely holy God, he has enough righteousness to satisfy all of the wrath of God that should be ours. And on the cross, Jesus 
removes the wrath of God for our sinful fear and our rebellion, and he extinguishes it. And then, because he's innocent and holy, he rises again in victory as a man over death and the grave. He triumphs over sin, death, and the grave. He defeats our sinful fear. He defeats our self-worship. And now he is alive as the ascended king, and he commands all of us, you and me, every person, to turn from trusting in ourselves and to put our hope in him. And he, this is, the, this is where the good news gets even better. The way God saves a person is he doesn't say to a dead heart, fix yourself, come up with some faith, try harder, make yourself right. When God saves a person, he takes their dead heart, he removes it and gives them a new heart. So he takes a dead sinner who can't do anything to make themselves right with God, with him, and he gives them new life. That's what the Bible means when it says that we are born again. God recreates us. He makes us alive. And now he enables us to turn from trusting in ourselves and to put our hope in him. Friends, that's what God has done in the gospel. And if God has, listen to me, Christian, listen to me, fearful, anxious Christian. If God has done all of that for you, if he sent his son to die for your sins, and he has raised Christ from the dead to vindicate you, to justify you, and to make you alive, and to give you a new heart so that you could turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in him. If he has done all of that, friends, he has promised you to bring you all the way home. And so even if you die, or whatever this earth may face or throw at you, God promises to bring all of his children all the way home. So there's nothing that this world or this virus or this virus or this economy can do to me apart from God's sovereign grace. You're safe, dear ones. You're safe, regardless of what this world may bring. And Flavel is saying, think about that gospel. Think about the promises of God. And the promises of God in the gospel is not 90 years of good health and comfort. The promises of God in the gospel is so much greater than that. It is to be reconciled with a holy God and to be with him forever, regardless of what this life brings. Friends, that's good news. And Flavel says, study it and know it and fight sinful fear with it. The second, man, I got carried away on that, but I got to finish this up. The second thing that he says that we should fight sinful fear with, he says we should mortify, we should, in other words, we should kill our affections of the world with this type of godly fear. That when we see that we should fear God more than this world, we should use it to kill the remaining sin in us, to, to mortify the ways that we love the world more than God. Listen to this description of these saints in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says about these people. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I want to meet these people in verse 34 in heaven someday. They were so fixed on eternity that when their earthly comforts were taken from them, they, they didn't moan about it. 
they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that what awaited them was a better possession, an abiding one, namely heaven, eternity with Christ. Friends, that type of attitude in a heart is only produced when we fear God more than we fear this world. And the third way that Flavel says that we should fight sinful fear is that we should, and this is the whole point we've been making, that we should exalt the fear of God in our hearts. Listen to how he summarizes this whole book in one sentence. He says, in order to subdue your slavish fear, you must exalt the fear of God in your hearts and let it gain the ascendancy over all other fears. Oh, that's my prayer from my heart for this church, for any of you that may be listening. God is doing something. This is ordained. Jesus has led us into the storm. And what's his purpose behind this? One of the things most certainly is that he would burn off the scum, the dross of the fear of this world, the fear of the future, and that the fear of God, the right, holy fear of God would gain, as Flavel says, ascendancy in our heart over all other fears. So we ask ourselves these questions before we pray. What do I fear more than God? What do I fear? Do I fear losing some bank account? Do I fear losing health? Do I fear losing a loved one? Do I just fear losing the general comforts and freedoms that I once had? Friends, if, if we fear those things more than we fear God, we need to confess it and let the ascendancy of God's fear eclipse these sinful fears. Do I really believe God's promise of good for me in the gospel? Do I really believe that no matter what happens to me, neither life nor death, the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If that's true, oh, then I can rightly and worshipfully fear God. What can this world do to me? Let's pray. Lord, this is easy to preach. It's... it's it's harder to live. Even as I'm saying these things and raising my voice in excitement and conviction, I'm convicted of the gap between what I am heralding and what is actually going on in my heart most of the time. And I confess that to you and to these people that are listening to me. And burn up my sinful fear. Let the fear of you take ascendancy in my heart, as Flavel has said. Lord, work in me and in these people that are listening a holy fear that leads first to knowing Christ. That you are a sovereign God. That you are a holy God. 
that will judge all of those that are outside of Christ and that our only hope is to find sanctuary in Jesus' work on the cross. Lord, anyone that doesn't know Christ, turn them to trust in you even now. Let them, let them see that their greatest need is to be reconciled to you, not to merely not catch a virus or lose a 401k. And then for those of us that do already know you and are safe in the sanctuary of Christ, Lord, let the fear of God in our hearts equip us to worship you more rightly, to walk in more joy so that you may be more glorified in our lives. And I pray this all for our good and the renown of your name. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.